Hello and welcome to episode 76 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 11 years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Leanna Baker, one of the highest-powered business reporters in the world. I say that because she oversees maybe the most critical area of coverage at the financial world's most important publication. Leanna is the managing editor of the Bloomberg News deals team in the United States, leading coverage of mergers and acquisitions. Before Leanna was a really big deal, we also happened to be classmates at Northwestern University and later colleagues at Reuters. She didn't start out as a business journalist. She got experience very young in high school and college, covering a lot of general news and sports. She is the second Canadian in a row we've had on the podcast, and we'll get to learn what the sport ringette is, as well as obligatory mentions of curling and the defunct Montreal Expos. She also reported on video games before going down the mergers and acquisitions rabbit hole. Sports kind of lingers through in the background, and she covered both the 2016 Summer Olympics in Brazil and the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea. But more than anything, I was curious about how M&A reporting works, and Leanna tells us what she can in a world where everything is about her sources, which obviously she cannot reveal. She'll give us a taste of it, though. For example, by telling us how she broke the biggest deal of her career on the day of her wedding shower. A minor show note, she wants you to know that she misspoke and that that deal is actually worth far more than she said. It's really $61 billion and not $39 billion. But, I mean, what's a measly $12 billion in the world of M&A? So now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Leanna Baker, Managing Editor of the Bloomberg News Deals Team in the United States. To warm up a little bit, if you could just tell us a little bit about where you are, both the space around you, the physical space, and geographically where you are, and a little bit about what your work week has been like so far. Sure. So I'm in New York City right now in my apartment in Midtown Manhattan, the air quality has been pretty bad, so I'm just staying indoors for the rest of the week. I, I made all my meetings into Zoom meetings because it was looking pretty orange outside today. Uh, so sort of a weird work week, some pandemic vibes, you know, not leaving the apartment today, especially. And then, so a big part of the podcast is figuring out how people got to where they are today, and we like to take a really long view on that. So first, I like to ask where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything planted the seed of interest in journalism early on. I'm from Montreal, Quebec. I grew up in a really insular Jewish community on the English side of town. Montreal's pretty divided, the French and English. I discovered a love of journalism really early on when I was in elementary school. I was a huge fan of Archie comics. I don't know if you used to read those. But I entered a contest where you write like a short article and you could win, you know, $10 on a free Archie comic. (laughs) And I wrote a little piece about haikus because I thought if I wrote what haikus are and then a little haiku about Archie comics, I thought, no brainer, they're going to pick me. And sure enough, they did. And I saw my name in print in an Archie comic and I was hooked. In high school in Montreal, high school starts in seventh grade and goes to 11th grade. So in eighth grade, I was already in high school and my high school had a newspaper called the Bialik Censored. And I 
was approached to start writing for it and movie reviews is where I started. I had a column called Baker at the Box Office in eighth grade. Oh, wow. And I just started doing these. It was a monthly publication. I think it still exists. It was called Censored because the administration would, would censor the uh, newspaper. But yeah, I started doing movie reviews and it was a lot of fun. And then by the time I was in 11th grade, which is the sort of your senior year when you graduate, I was the editor-in-chief and I, I knew I wanted to be a reporter. And growing up in a small sort of English community, the uh, media scene was, was accessible. There were some English language newspapers, even in my neighborhood. There was something called the Montreal Suburban. And I started freelancing for them in high school, covering local sports, like a baseball game and football and there's a Canadian sport called ringette, which is like hockey, but with like different sticks and it's mostly played by women. Like instead of a puck, it's like a, like a ring. So I covered all these fun Canadian sports. And then in ninth grade, I actually got assigned to cover a teacher's rally for the English Montreal School Board. And the article was heavily rewritten, but that was my first taste of covering sort of a live event. That wasn't sports. So I, I just, yeah, I really was a reporter even in high school. And I was trying to network at the Montreal Gazette, which was the English like language daily, like the big paper in Montreal. And I had a few articles in the Gazette. I wrote a column in the National Post. Um, and I was in 11th grade. And then you go to something called CGEP in Montreal. It's sort of a junior college. It's before university, but after high school. It's grade 12 and 13. It's a separate college. So I um, went to something called Dawson College where I studied liberal arts and I kept up the freelancing. And at that point, I realized I needed to leave Montreal because it's a great multicultural city with a lot of French influence. But to work in the media, you have to really speak French. And because I grew up on the English side of town, even though like my ancestors were born in, in Montreal, I knew I just I couldn't hack it probably in, in French. So I realized I'd have to go to either Ontario or the United States to pursue journalism. And I was lucky to apply to Northwestern where I know, you know, I, I got to meet you. I had some family. My uncle had been the rabbi at like the Hillel at Northwestern because oh, huh. that's how I found out about it. It's at the time, it was kind of rare for students in Montreal. Now it's more popular, but at the time it was rare to go away for college because there's really good universities in Canada that are super cheap. McGill University's in Montreal. So that would have been a lot cheaper, but I was lucky I was an only child and my parents thought sending me to the U.S. would be a great opportunity. And I... Um, went to Northwestern, there was no looking back after that in terms of journalism. Yeah, wow. You were really steeped in it already by the time you showed up. And I'm learning things I didn't know about Canada. I didn't know this junior college thing was a common thing, and I didn't know about that hockey-like sport with a ring. Ringette. But yeah, no, Quebec is a very unique province, so I'm pretty sure this CGEP only exists in, in Quebec. Ontario used to have a grade 13, but they phased it out. Cool. So you go from Montreal to Northwestern New Chicago, where we met. I mean, was that a big adjustment for you coming from Canada? Or was it 
I mean, it's not that far distance wise. Yeah, I would say the biggest adjustment was just the whole U.S. college experience. I remember that I flew to Chicago and my parents didn't move me into college, for example, because we didn't know that was a thing, you know, move in day. So little things like that, I just didn't know, but I picked up. The drinking age, being 21, was also different because Quebec, the drinking age was 18. And I started at Northwestern at 19, so I felt like I was regressing. But I also was very intimidated by the idea of studying at Medill uh, at Northwestern. So I decided that I should get an internship even before I started. Wow. So the summer before Medill, I did an internship in Israel. So I flirted with being a foreign correspondent. So I thought it's funny that your podcast really interviews a lot of foreign correspondents, which, which I'm not really one. But I did an internship before Northwestern at a place called the Media Line, which was a nonprofit U.S. news agency based in Jerusalem. It was a good experience. And then I did another summer there also after freshman year. But I got a taste of what it's like to be a foreign correspondent. I realized I don't have the stamina for it. And it was very depressing because that first summer was the 2006 Lebanon war between Israel and Lebanon. And I thought it was really cool to be in a country where you could like have a really comfortable lifestyle, like living in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. But then if you just drive a few hours, you could be in a war zone. But it still just freaked me out a little too much. So that was good that I got it out of my system pretty early on. Yeah, wow, that's intense early on. And yeah, you've done so much journalism by the time you showed up to Northwestern. That's crazy. If you just give me a sec, I didn't realize my cat's in the room. I'm going to put her outside. She keeps meowing. One sec. Love cats. Oh, no. Don't go to bed. Okay, never mind. She is now hidden herself under the bed where I can't get her. Yeah. Where were we? So you arrive at Northwestern and... You know, at Northwestern, you apply to the school you want to get in, so you go straight into Medill, the journalism school. I mean, you've done so much. How did you find the education, you know, coming in with all this experience already? I would say a part of me felt like I peaked too early because I had been doing journalism for a long time, and my goal was really to get a job in journalism. And when I got to Northwestern, I found it was pretty competitive. It was hard to stand out in Medill. And I got involved with The Daily, where I know you work too, and got a lot of journalism experience. But I found being at a U.S. college, it was just overwhelming, everything. So I kind of like scaled back a little bit in terms of journalism. I wanted to be involved at the paper, but I realized being a reporter would be a really just a huge amount of work. So I became a copy editor and went through the copy editor track at the Daily. And eventually I was the copy desk chief, you know, junior, senior year. So I got to work with the managing editors and the editor, editors in chief. And a lot of those reporters went on to amazing things like Brian Rosenthal. You know, he's won a Pulitzer. Emily Glazer is amazing at the Wall Street Journal. So I was working with all these people, but more in a copy editing capacity. So I wanted to be involved in journalism, but I just... I wasn't able to really go full at it as a reporter for The Daily, for example. I did do some sports reporting. I was the golf reporter freshman year, and I covered tennis. Because it was just, those felt easier to me because I had the sports background. 
but I I remember I pitched like a story to the campus desk and I like never ended up writing it just because there was so much to do at Northwestern and I definitely put in the hours though on the, the copy desk and some of the golfers that I covered when I was a freshman, they're still competing. One's on the PGA Tour. I was just watching him on TV. He was tied for the lead going into the Memorial Tournament over the weekend, and he could have won, like, millions of dollars. This guy, David Lipsky, but he, oh, wow. he faded. But I think he still made, like, a few hundred K from that tournament. Yeah, wow. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm interested about this competition you felt because – yeah, I mean, I wasn't in Medill. I went to the Arts and Sciences College. And I mean, I was always of the opinion that the Medill people were all a bit snooty. I mean, I got along great with the people at the the Daily Northwestern. But can you just elaborate a little bit on that? I mean, yeah, I just felt it was just it felt competitive, which is actually pretty good training because we'll talk about it later, just the competitive kind of journalism I'm in, M&A reporting, where, you know, you get beat by seconds by the Wall Street Journal and all your work goes to nothing. So, but, or you could have, you know, a big scoop and then beat the competition and it's, you're on a huge high. So that fast paced competition, I maybe learned that at Medill, but I remember it was always a fight to make sure I wasn't burning out and just taking other classes. It it just felt like Medill, it, it was just a lot. I enjoyed the more practical classes. We did a class, so I think it's called junior year. I forget what it's called, but you basically, you have a newsroom in a neighborhood in Chicago and your professor is sort of like the bureau chief and he's assigning stories and you're just like working a neighborhood beat and talking to real people and interviewing people on the street and not in the, really the classroom, or your classroom is like a fake newsroom. I think that's a really good model. I hope they're still doing that at Medill because that I found useful to really like put in the reps because I don't think other journalism schools really do stuff like that. So that that was it was very valuable. And Medill, I really owe them a lot because they had a program called Medill on the Hill. I did it the inaugural quarter, winter quarter, junior year. I went to Washington, D.C. for this new program that used to only be available to grad students. Um, grad students at Medill would have, you know, semesters in Washington and they'd get press passes on Capitol Hill. But this was the first time undergrads could do it. And we're only about like 10, 11 students. And that program was great because I got to know a professor who recommended me for an internship at Reuters, where I landed after senior year and she also recommended me for my first like real internship that was paid it was at McGraw Hill on a trade publication called Platts covering the energy space oh sure yeah I wanted to be an environmental journalist which is funny because that's what you do but uh, I also I also (laughs) got that on my system because I did some reporting on the Department of Energy, and I actually went to the Copenhagen like climate negotiations, like COP fifteen or something. Like, oh wow! So I dabbled in that, but it also was too depressing. Like being a foreign correspondent in Israel was too depressing. So I, <laughs> but Medill, like the investment I made in it, not to just give them free PR, but I got like I got a job at Reuters after I graduated where I stayed for nine years thanks to like a professor Ellen Shearer who she's now retired but she was the head of the 
DC program for Medill. So she was just a great mentor. And I do owe that to the school because like how many programs could you really get into the workforce from knowing the professors? Yeah, well, and yeah, I mean, I went to Northwestern and I didn't have that much of a relationship with professors, had somewhat, but, you know, my jobs I all got through people I knew at Northwestern who often knew professors. My first job in China, I think Noman Merchant, who's been on the podcast, put me in touch with a professor who put me in touch with a publisher in China who, or put me in touch with a journalist for the FT at China who put me in touch with a publisher who got me a job in China uh, or something crazy like that. Um, So yeah, it was almost more worth it for them. Small world. Yeah. I I worked with Noman also at the daily. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And we worked together at the daily. I was trying to remember what desk you were on the copy desk. I was just so in and out and like, I, I understand about, you know, Medill being all-consuming, that's mostly why I didn't study there. I wanted to study abroad for a year in China. I wanted to study a lot of language. I wanted to do all these things, and it did just seem a little bit too all-consuming. But I know you took Medill classes, because I remember you from our business reporting class. Right, right. And we should talk about that. And we should talk about business reporting more in general. Like, I went abroad for my junior year, the entire year. I left, the economy was fine. I came back, and it was tanking. But it really meant that people cared about business journalism and they cared about what was going in the economy. And I'm like, oh, I I should get into this. And I was really gung-ho about it. And I watched all the movies about finance and, like, you know, took this business reporting class with you and really, like, had this whole spiel if anybody asked me that I wanted to be a business reporter. And this was why. And you you had done so many things by this point, and I would say your focus had not been business thus far. I mean, at what point did you kind of get on board with the business reporting thing? It all goes back to Medill. They had a program called Journalism Residency, or JR, where they directly place you in an internship for three months. So senior year, I got an internship at MarketWatch in San Francisco, and that was covering the stock market. And that was sort of my first taste of like hardcore stock market reporting. I had done an internship at Platts at McGraw-Hill covering like Department of Energy. That was more policy, just covering like a big government department. But MarketWatch kind of was my foray into business journalism. And I just, I really loved it. It reminded me of sports reporting in terms of how it's like, you know there's different lingo and there's like you're keeping score with the stock price and I also thought some of the issues that interested me like environmental policy and and climate change that that was all related to business because if you know where the money comes from you could figure out a lot about what's happening so that was sort of how I got into it and I think you were sort of talking about your, your story in China I just feel like in journalism, you you either fall into journalism or you like fall into a beat. And even if you want to be a certain reporter, like I I wanted to be a foreign correspondent and I want to be an environmental journalist, it never really worked out. And like you were saying, you want to be a business journalist. Although I I would argue working at Reuters, you are a business journalist. (laughs) So everyone is a business journalist. But I definitely think that It's something people have to tell you about, that there's this whole industry 
uh, business reporting and the jobs are great. They're way more stable than other kinds of journalism. They pay better. And I really think more colleges should be focused on business journalism. Like Northwestern have that one class we took. There should be a whole track track in it yeah. because investigative journalism can relate to business, but just just having like a little foot in the door in, in business, I think, could really help students like get into the workforce quickly and really good careers if there's just a little more training in it early on. For sure. And I mean, the business reporting class was probably the only useful out of the three journalism classes I took in Medill. Like uh, I took one on like news and new media that was obsolete almost instantly. And like the news 101 was just kind of remedial if you had done anything before. So that was horrible. Yeah. horrible. So you did the market watch internship summer before senior year. Is that right? It was winter of senior year, and then when I graduated, I started at Reuters. So senior year after graduation, I was already at Reuters. They interviewed me while I was at MarketWatch, which was really lucky because I was just in the right mindset to answer all the questions on the phone. And at the time, the the Reuters head of the internship program lived in Chicago. This guy, Greg McCune, he's also since retired, but... I was really lucky because I was at Northwestern senior, like basically I'd already gotten, I knew I was going to Reuters, but I didn't know what bureau I was going to. And I went to his office in downtown Chicago from Evanston and I just said, hey, Greg, which office or which bureau will I have the best chance of getting a job? I was really focused on getting a job because I was an international student and I had to get a job within... 12 months or I'd be kicked out of the country back to Canada, which Canada is great. But we talked about earlier, small media market in Quebec, you have to speak French. I was already writing for some of the papers and I wanted to make it in the U.S. So he told me that New York would be the best chance of getting a job because they have more demand for reporters there. I thought maybe I wanted to go to D.C. where I had interned at McGraw-Hill Platts, but he convinced me to go to New York. And that's, again, how I fell into sort of being a business reporter at Reuters. But back to the business reporting class we took, the one takeaway from that class, which is it's funny how it worked out, we were assigned a book about the AOL-Time Warner merger, one of the most disastrous mergers in history. I don't know if you remember reading that book, but yep. now that I cover mergers and acquisitions, that was a good read because it like taught me about deal-making and which is what I, I covered today. So it all kind of ties back together. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember that's one of the parts of the class I remember. I think about the book and I think about, sometimes I think about the like how the strategies we learned for how to attack source building for like being concentric circles with like the CEO of the company is at the middle and then the outer ring or as people around him all the way out to like people outside of the company and analysts and former employees and things like that. And especially when I was doing more business reporting, like I thought a lot about that and that stuck with me. Let's see. So you go to Reuters, you go to Reuters as an intern, is that correct? And you're just hoping the intern pan trip pans out into a job? Exactly. And I was lucky. I was put on a desk. It was called Widget, which doesn't exist anymore. But there's <laughs> a lot of alumni of Widget, like Tiffany Wu, who's really senior at Reuters. She was 
uh, had been the editor of that team. But by the time I came on the scene, she was the company news editor. But as a young reporter, I got assigned to the video game industry first, I guess, at the tail end of my internship. And then they, they had an opening for a video game reporter. So they tested me out after my three-month internship. And I hate video games, still hate them to this day. Like, I think they're so stupid, but <laughs> it's actually fun. It's, it, I was able to be objective because there's a lot of issues in, in video game journalism. A lot of the reporters are like just big fans of the games. And like, how, how are you supposed to be objective if like, you know, people would be cheering at press conferences and stuff. So me not liking video games, I think gave me an edge. And I learned about the business models of video games, and that's interactive entertainment. And from there, I got into media reporting because I had an editor, Peter Loria, who he went on to like become a BuzzFeed business editor, and he was very influential, and also Ken Lee at Reuters. So they gave me a chance to cover things outside of video games after a few years to cover the big cable companies and uh, media companies. And... Around 2014, there was a huge mergers happening in cable. Comcast tried to buy Time Warner Cable. That was actually announced. It later fell apart or got blocked. And that's when I got a taste for the fast-paced world of mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, so you had you did the video game thing for a while. You transitioned to this more media beat. I mean, how, how long does all this take before you kind of get into M&A? I'd say it took about four years of different business beats. I think it was great that I I was a beat reporter covering different companies, different sectors, because I got to cover earnings, which I think every business reporter should have a stint covering earnings. As an M&A reporter now, I don't really need to cover earnings, and but I think if you have that training, you could really, it, it helps. And so, yeah, I, I was poached in 2014 by the M&A team, I caught their eye because I, I would break a little news, not a huge amount of news, but I was able to get people around the companies to talk about deals. Um, and I broke a little bit of news around Time Warner Cable, which is now sort of Spectrum in, in New York City, uh, or Charter. And I just, yeah, I just kind of got the bug for covering deals and moved over the deals team. And that was almost 10 years ago. So I've been in this area for almost 10 years. It's really flown by. I've seen a few cycles of like big consolidation happening to things like the SPAC boom of the pandemic, where we saw these huge blank check mergers, saw that totally fall apart like a fad. And now we're in a pretty dead M&A market. Um, I've also seen like big IPOs, like Facebook's IPO. You know, we had Airbnb, WeWork, uh, you know, Twitter going private. Like there's just been some huge business stories of the past decade that have been just, it's just been an awesome ride covering some of this. Even this week, this merger between the PGA Tour and Live Golf was just a huge jaw-dropping story. No one really broke it, although CNBC was like five minutes or four minutes ahead of the news. So I guess David Faber did break it at CNBC. But it's just fun when there's a a big deal that transcends business reporting, becomes like a, a major story or a mainstream story. And those are always the most fun ones to be a part of because 
regular people care. Like my parents understand what, what I'm covering for once. So, but they don't, they don't come along that often. And I mean, I do spend, back when I was setting out and wanted to be a business journalist, I, you know, didn't have any experience, but I talked a big game and I wanted to do something that was kind of, you know, I'd say, oh, I want to like cover Congress or I want to go be an M&A reporter. And that was the example of the like balls to the wall business reporter. But I'll be honest, do I really understand how your job works? Not, not really. I do wonder about it. I know how source building works, but I just like, I've always wondered how people in that world, like how the source building works, how the source relationships work. I would venture a guess that it's something that requires a lot of upfront investment in like making sources. But then like, once you've been doing it, as long as you have people come to you with things, but I don't know. I don't want you to give up all your secrets, but I am just very curious how, how it all works. You mentioned source building, and that is really the foundation of any M&A reporting or any good business reporting. It's all about your network, who you know, who will talk to you in confidence, who trusts you. And that's why I really do encourage people to think about M&A reporting or business reporting, even if they're covering totally other things. Because if you could make sources in Congress or make sources at, with like the management of a sports team, you could probably make sources with the M&A advisors and the people that show up around deals. So it really doesn't take a huge amount of knowledge about even how these companies work or what they do. It's just about getting people to trust you quickly with information that could be market moving and it really is thrilling when you publish a story a few days ahead of a big merger that gets announced. And there's also highs and lows, though, because if you're wrong with a story or even if you were right at the time, it's we see this a lot in M&A where a leak could kill a deal. Like there's a reason why this Live Golf PGA Tour merger, no, none of the players knew about it or it didn't leak until five minutes before because the principals knew to keep it quiet because it was so explosive. If it got out, it would probably kill it. So we see that a lot with public company deals and it's kept to a small circle. But once it leaks, it could a stock price could move down, especially the acquirer stock price. It could, could move down. A few years ago, we reported on PayPal pursuing an acquisition of Pinterest, the social networking site. And we reported it first and then all the other News outlets followed the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. But a few weeks later, or I think it was just a few days later, the, basically PayPal's stock had tanked as soon as the story came out. So a few days later, they put out a statement saying they're not in talks with Pinterest. doesn't mean all the stories that came out were wrong. It just means at the time the stories were right, but now the talks are off. So that's something we see a lot, and it could be frustrating for reporters in my world when you put out a story and then you know the talks die because to an outsider or to an investor it might look like your story was wrong when really it was right but deals are really tough to get to the finish line and will people complain to you or how would that manifest itself people will complain either to like so at bloomberg and i'm sure at, at reuters you also you have different you know customers so they they have a voice and they could reach out to you or your, to your manager 
we also see just with with Twitter and social media, you know, people could write bad things about you because if you like lose money on a story, let's say you invested in, in a deal and it, it fell apart. It's not a reporter's fault that it fell apart. It just it just did. And we were providing news to the market that hadn't been known, which is a value, but people could take it out on you. So that's something I've seen and it's hard for some reporters to deal with, but you really have to have thick skin and just block block all that out. Gotcha. Yeah. And I mean, I'm curious, why would anybody in this deal world, if news getting out could threaten deal, why would they possibly talk to reporters? It's a great question, and I try not to think about it too much because you never want to ask a source, why are you telling me this? There could be a whole host of reasons, but at the end of the day, everyone has different motivations, and sometimes it makes sense for the media to be involved in a deal narrative. Like, let's say you're in a hostile deal situation where you have a company. I'm trying to think of, like, something that would be people would know about that was public. Elon Musk, when he tried to buy Twitter, Twitter didn't really want to sell to him right away, but he, he gave a knockout price that, you know, they, they couldn't say no. But in something like that where you might not have a buyer and a seller seeing eye to eye, there's a way that the media kind of gets used as part of the deal. So occasionally that could happen. I don't want to give specifics, but there is a role for M&A reporters to play when you have a hostile situation or there's something that has to get out in the market so there's pressure on a company to do something. So people could be motivated to get stuff out for those reasons. They might also be just proud of a transaction they're on or that they lost out on, on something. Like there's a lot of bankers that pitch deals and just like lose out, unfortunately. When you see a deal announced, there's usually just like one or two bankers on each side, but there was probably a dozen bankers that pitched those companies and they didn't get chosen. So there is kind of a, a rumor mill going on of information. And yeah, it's like kind of a mix of all of the above, but we, we don't really know why a good source would leak something, but I would say a lot of it's relationships. And this is like in any beat, you want to have the best relationships with sources and just always be expanding your network. And then hopefully they'll think of you when they have a story, but they could also have a close relationship with your competitors. And it could be painful because you think you have someone in your pocket, but really they give a story to your you know, crosstown rival and your boss is asking you where, why didn't we break that story? So it's like very transactional, but you really do have to invest in relationships. You mentioned investing up front. It's, it's important to meet people in person and get them to trust you to even have a chance to, to break stories. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm curious how it compares to, I guess, the image of a lot of this stuff. Like a lot of people might think, you know, a lot of finance movies were made in the 80s and it's a very different time now. Like, I mean, are these a lot of blowhards? Do you have to go to a lot of 
like fancy restaurants and shit like that? Or how does this actually, <laughs> what are these sources actually like? Everyone's different. And I will say I don't drink. <laughs> so that's something when I was a younger reporter, you know, I have a cocktail, but for different reasons, I don't drink. And I don't think it's held me back, but I think other different reporters have different strategies. But like one way you would think, you know, sources would talk to you if you just, you know, liquor them up a little bit. But that's that's not the case with me. But I'd say, yeah, we're, I'm networking a lot. But, you know, the sources have different personalities and you never know where information could come from. And it's impossible to chase leaks. So even stories written by journalists I follow closely who I compete with there's no way of knowing who really spoke to them. Like you might think, you know, but no one will ever admit to being a leaker. So, you know, you, you're never supposed to reveal your sources. You really, everything is super confidential because if you reveal your sources, like, you know, no one will ever talk to you again. So I don't want to reveal too much about the personalities of people, but it's all about finding common ground and finding people that you like that you're going to call every week for five years and they might not tell you something for for four years but then on the 400th call they tell you some things but if you like talking you know you're going to call sources that you like and that you have some common ground with but it's it's and it's it's also uh, a lot of teamwork in this this game because like my team right now, we have a lot of really good reporters. And at one point, we were almost like 10 people in the U.S., but now um, we had some openings and we're doing some hiring. But what's great about this beat is that if you get a tip, you might have the colleague next to you at, at work break the second source or they get the tip or you get it over the line. So we're constantly trying to use our team to break news together and that's why you might see three or four bylines on the top of a, a big story i guess the the last question i'll ask about that is I'm, I'm just curious if you felt you had kind of a natural affinity for that or if it took you a long time to figure out source building or if it was a gradual process i had no idea what i was doing when i started at reuters as an MA reporter I'm at Bloomberg for the past four years, but when I started at Reuters, I had good mentors, but I really thought that sources would call me up when they had a story. And like, I had a little, uh, it took me a while to get up to speed, but maybe it just probably took me a month or two until I figured out you got to be dialing for dollars and just like working the phones. And the most nerve wracking thing is when you meet a source in person for the first time, the first call to them, like to convert your meeting in person to a phone relationship where you're going to get information. That's like a big deal. And I think I was, it's still, still to this day, it's, it's not easy to always, you know, convert that, but I had to learn all of that. And luckily it's not rocket science being an MA reporter. It's really fun. So there's a, like just a long history of people who've done it. And there were people willing to show me the ropes and how to phrase questions. Like, you're not going to call someone up and say, Jake, tell me a scoop. What do you got for me? You have to kind of ease them into it or you have to sort of anticipate what the story is before they tell you. So I would say, Jake, is it silly for, for me to report this? You know, you kind of like, 
you have to have like a light touch and that definitely comes with time. And that was all just taught to me from, you know, apprenticeship model of hearing people on the phone around me and just trying to pick up on their, on their styles. But you, you develop your own style, but you kind of have to pick up some kind of strategy or no one's going to answer your calls. For sure. For sure. So usually, yeah, I like to ask, I usually go down a person's resume through their jobs, ask them the highlights. I know you can't talk that specifically about some things, but is there any like deal story you wanted to highlight or any story at Reuters uh, before we move on to talk about Bloomberg? So it's all blurring together after 10 years on this this beat, but I would say Reuters did a little write-up when I was there about one story I was proud of because it was a long simmering situation. It was Sprint and T-Mobile. You might recall that they merged a few years ago, but around that, I forget like when exactly what iteration of the talks there were, but I broke news that SoftBank, which owned Sprint was like sort of willing to sell out of Sprint. And at the time SoftBank was really consolidating and, you know, Sprint was supposed to buy T-Mobile. And so I, I broke some big story around how they they were open to selling. And then that kind of laid the framework for T-Mobile eventually merging with Sprint. And they're now one company. But that, that was a fun story that got a lot of attention at the time. And I did a little like interview on like how I got the story and stuff like that. And then covering media, there was just a lot of fun, fun stuff like There was some bid that went in for like a newspaper that was 99 cents um, that got some attention (laughs) and like, yeah, just everything in media is just outsized attention. So that was just a really fun beat to cover. I was covering tech, media, telecom, M&A. I did a stint in San Francisco to get closer to the tech industry for two years. And yeah, I just, I had a lot of really fun scoops. At Reuters and what was also great about working there was that I got to go to two Olympics and the Rio 2016 games and the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics in 2018. We talked at the beginning about how I have roots in sports so it was just a thrill to use my Northwestern, daily Northwestern golf reporting experience to cover the inaugural golf tournament in the Olympics in 2016. So I got to cover men's and women's golf. That was just amazing. And I also cover business stories. So I tried to meld kind of the two worlds of of sports and business, which is now like a huge area in itself. Yeah, didn't you? I mean, the the sports reporting is is pretty straightforward. You go to the Olympics, you reported like you would have reported a game or, or whatever. I mean, it's a more varied sports, obviously, at the Olympics. But how did the business stuff work. Am I right that you covered like sponsorships or something? I I would see the beats or the roles available and I I would be like, how do you begin to cover this? Yeah. So I think having covered companies, the sponsors of the Olympics, I'm a little rusty now because I'm a retired Olympic correspondent, but like right now I'm pretty sure Alibaba is a big sponsor and Visa and Samsung and some of the biggest companies in the world that we cover day in, day out, a lot of tech companies, those are the big IOC sponsors. So if you get close to them, it's part of their strategy to advertise at the Olympics. So it's it's all related. 
And we talked about cable and that's how I got into M&A. Well, Comcast is the big Olympics broadcaster at the games for the US. So covering cable, that was kind of a way in. And I, I had a lot of fun covering how Comcast and NBC covers the Olympics. I did a lot of stories where, you know, I got to, to tour their huge broadcast operation and interview a team of people that try to come up with viral moments from the games that, you know, they're literally cutting videos. They're hoping will go viral to see what sticks. And that was a really cool experience to follow those people around. And, um, yeah, there's a whole like world of like how the Olympics is broadcast that I would try to break into. And there was also guerrilla marketing tactics, which are another interesting area. So Apple, they aren't a sponsor of the Olympics or anything like that, but they had released some like watch bands of different country colors around the Rio Olympics. So they were selling these Olympic stuff. So I, I covered that and yeah, like Under Armour also does a lot of guerrilla marketing, although now they're tied up with different sports governing bodies. So they're not like an Olympic sponsor, but they might, you know, sponsor like the rugby team from New Zealand or something. So yeah, learning about that whole world was interesting. And the rules changed. I think it was called rule 40, but athletes used to not be allowed to have their own sponsors stream the Olympics. And it, it changed while I was covering it. So that was a big trend also, like how athletes now have a voice and what brands they could promote during the Olympics. So there used to be sort of a ban on all that and they could only promote brands that were like official partners. That's a lot. Wow. I guess then, yeah, when it comes to covering the actual events of the Olympics, I mean, what were some of the highlights or the coolest things you saw? Or did you get to interview athletes or? Yeah, it's funny. The editors wanted me to cover more of the like like bobsled in Pyeongchang and I was like ooh that's kind of cold like I think I'll just like not cover bobsled and just do a business story so I feel like <laughs> becoming a business reporter was like a little cushy at the Olympics like I wasn't really a hardcore sports reporter I was just kind of doing my own thing especially the the second time around but you get a press pass at the Olympics and you could go into almost any venue if it's like a large scale venue. So I saw Usain Bolt, you know, sweep the three events, you know, gold medal events in Rio. And then in Pyeongchang, I saw a ton of, of hockey, which was great as a Canadian to watch some of that. Although Canada, I don't think did that great. So yeah, just having that press pass. And when you're off work, there's always an event going on and you could just kind of roam and maybe it's speed skating or, um, you know, skiing or at summer Olympics, you know, beach volleyball. So it's just really, it's so, it's like so vast and there's not much free time, but it's just awesome if you're a fan of sport to catch all of the stuff that's going on. But if you cover too many Olympics, you will get jaded against the IOC. <laughs> so now it's hard for me to watch the Olympics on TV because I also remember like you really are working 24 7 for like two three weeks and it's not the healthiest atmosphere so there's no work-life balance when you're an olympics reporter because it's such a quick trip so now i am retired from that beat but i will try to enjoy watching the olympics on tv from now on yeah yeah no i love the olympics and love watching it on tv so maybe it's best that 
I didn't try to do that. <laughs> but it's sad in Brazil, which I know you're an expert on, but like the golf course, they had a championship golf course that I heard is like abandoned. Like it's just all the infrastructure that they built and all the money they put in is all just disappeared. Yeah, and I just missed the Olympics coming here, but a lot of other reporters, like there was the big time that like drew them to Brazil was the World Cup and the Olympics, and they kind of came and freelance and stayed. So it was pretty formative for a lot of people, and a lot of those reporters have you know dug into all the derelict infrastructure that was built. I, I haven't heard a single positive story about like infrastructure later being well used and maintained after the Olympics in Rio. So, oh well. Shame. Then you you moved to Bloomberg. Could you just like explain how that move went down? And, like, give me the nitty gritty. Did you start applying for jobs? Did they reach out to you? You'd been at Reuters for a long time. Was it just time for a change? What happened? I think it's important that when you start somewhere as an intern, that eventually you move on. I do think nine years was a great run. I was so grateful for Reuters and everything I learned there. But, I mean, there's always going to be people that still think of you as an intern, right, When if that's your first gig. So I always knew at some point I had to move on. And Bloomberg was always the place that we were competing with. And I remember, like, I would make friends with people in New York and finance, like, and if I heard they had a Bloomberg terminal, I would like get their email and try to just stay in touch with them because I needed access to Bloomberg when I was at Reuters. And there's some antitrust law, like there's some reason at Reuters, they don't have a Bloomberg terminal. You're not allowed to have one. So I was always like emailing people, trying to get the stories. And I just was always very aware of Bloomberg. And I knew it was similar in the, ethos on the culture and like getting news out quickly it just seemed really similar to Reuters but also different so I always thought eventually I would I would go over and then the right opportunity came up I always wanted to try managing and being like a player coach and at Reuters I was a team leader and I got a little into that but at Reuters the team leaders aren't really managers they're just kind of like almost managers but not really so it was a, a big step to say, okay, I want to be full-time manager, still do some reporting as a hybrid, but that was what Bloomberg offered that felt like the natural next step in my career. So I went cross town from Times Square to Midtown East for the job in 2019, and four years has flown by. I know there's been the pandemic time warp, and I was only at Bloomberg like six months before the pandemic, but... It's just, I can't believe it's been four years. Like, I've just, it feels like yesterday I joined, and it's its just an awesome place to work. Yeah, it doesn't feel like four years since you announced you were leaving by any means. Because, yeah, I, I joined Reuters, I mean, well after you, but uh, we were briefly colleagues. I think the last time I saw you in person was in the Reuters building. I later went to the cafeteria and ate a sandwich probably with you and it gave me terrible food poisoning <laughs> those Sodexo like I don't miss the Sodexo cafeteria <laughs> for Rogers. yeah I don't e I don't even think it exists anymore after the pandemic but I don't go to New York enough to know yeah no I saw they moved to a uh, a hotel desking hot desk model but yeah I wonder if there is any food in there I'll have to find yeah. out <laughs> Bloomberg has great snacks, so we're known for our snacks. So 
that is one thing that Bloomberg just eats Reuters lunch all day long is the snacks. Yeah, yeah. I remember going, I went, I've been in the Bloomberg office because in that business reporting class, like the teacher, like, helped at least set up some informational interviews or whatever for me. And I went to Bloomberg and like they had this huge snack bar area and the guy's like, feel free to grab whatever. But of course I'm a timid little student and I'm like, I'm okay. (laughs) So yeah, didn't avail myself of that. Let's see. So, I mean, at Reuters, like they tend to tell you a lot of scare stories about Bloomberg, you know, don't go there. They're heartless, whatever, blah, blah. I mean, I know many people at Bloomberg at this point, but what is the difference? How, how did you find it that much different? And yeah, tell us a little bit about it. I mentioned that they're both really fast paced, competitive, that sort of like atmosphere that appealed to me. The products are a little different, but it's the same idea. Instead of Icon, which is like pretty glitchy, we have the terminal, which is less glitchy. It definitely, there's a learning curve learning the terminal and it's probably using like, like however we use 5% of our brains, like I'm probably using like 5% of the terminal or not even that much. So that's sort of the big difference, but it's a really professional organization. I've been given really good training classes because I was a first time manager and I was eventually promoted. And there's just, it's like a really good professional place where there's career advancement opportunities. And at Reuters was also great, but I I was in a union and there was always like, I feel like, I guess you're not unionized in Brazil, but there's always felt like a bit of tension with management and it's, it's a bit different at Bloomberg. We don't have that in uh, our New York office at least. So, yeah, it's just, I could go on and on. It's just a great place to work. But it does have that same DNA, though, of fast-breaking news. You want to be first. You want to move the, move the market. And um, there's customers who are paying top dollar to have access to the news. And both places you're competing with, with some other big brands. So I, I'd say there's definitely a kinship if you've worked out one wire or the other. So next up is the section about stories. So first, I like to ask the question that's more of a downer about a story that got away. So a story that you wanted to do, but couldn't do for whatever reason, you know, you couldn't get the right people to talk to you, you couldn't convince an editor it was a story, you know, whatever, a trip went wrong. Does anything come to mind for that one? So... There's too many to count because I'm really on a competitive beat where you could be minutes away from losing out on a story. But one that story that stands out was I was at the Code Conference, which is Kara Swisher's tech conference when I moved to California. And I was standing around with like a PR person and some VC guy walks by and he says that Microsoft is going to buy LinkedIn. He just like tells us this. And I'm like, we're kind of like, who is this crazy guy telling us that Microsoft's going to buy LinkedIn? And <laughs> I didn't take it seriously. But sure enough, a few days later, Microsoft bought LinkedIn in a $22 billion, like their biggest deal ever at the time. And I had made one call to a banker after I heard this tip. I just said, hey, you know, someone was telling me Microsoft's going to buy LinkedIn, but I don't know how seriously to take it. But looking back, I mean, I should have just canceled the rest of my trip and just worked that story, right, until I broke it. So that one is like the one that got away. That would have been a huge, huge scoop 
and that's a bummer but there's sadly there's so many stories like that a good friend of mine lauren hirsch who's at deal book she'd be another great guest for your podcast she had kind of picked up some rumblings about amazon buying whole foods when we worked at reuters together so for her that's the one that got away but in the deals world there's just you can't break every deal you could try but they're always going to be a few blockbusters that get away and you just have to be positive and and move on even if you get scooped and just there's always a deal around the corner yeah wow do you uh just out of curiosity i mean do you ever feel burnt out about it i mean you've been doing this a long time i'm sure there have been periods of burnout but it takes a lot of stamina this beat and yeah, I've been lucky to have really supportive managers. Um, my boss, Aaron Kirschfeld in London right now is great. And I worked for someone at Bloomberg, Lizzie Fournier and at Reuters, Greg Rumeloidis. And I, I am a player coach now, but it's helpful to have player coaches as your managers because they understand what it's like to be a reporter and to be burning out and how to prevent that. So if you've done it yourself, you can look for the signs. So that's why I think M&A, a lot of the editors that move up, they've done the, the job. And that's, that's a key thing. Okay, cool. And then next is the story behind the story. So if you could pick one story you've done in your career, could be from any time that you're proud of, and just tell us how it all went down, how you came up with it, how you got the source to, to tell you the info, or, or whatever is the story behind the story. Last summer... It was late May 2022, and I was at my bridal shower that was at my apartment that my now mother-in-law helped me organize it, but it was a small, tasteful bridal shower on our, our roof here in Manhattan. And as it was wrapping up, people were leaving. I got a call from a source, won't say who it is. All they said was, hey, the biggest deal ever in tech is happening. That's all they said. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, ugh. and like covering this beat for so long, you hear tips like that, like the biggest deal ever. And you're like, okay. So I ping my team and I'm like, guys, I hear the biggest deal in tech is happening. And it's like, what do we even do with that info? But I somehow like, basically my mother-in-law helped clean up and it was, and I just like came back to my bedroom here downstairs because we're on the roof and everyone was gone and I just kind of like locked myself in the bedroom and just like started calling. Like longtime M&A reporters will get this feeling sometimes where you're just making calls automatically sort of like you're kind of in the zone. You don't even know what you're doing. Like you're just thinking, OK, I'll call this person. I'll call that person. Like you, you're kind of your machine instinct kicks in. And that's what like happened. I just like was in the zone and just calling around and I just somehow found people that knew what this was and gave me enough hints that I figured it out. It just, I got really lucky because sometimes these tips don't turn into anything. And I uh, partnered with Ed Hammond, who's a star M&A reporter, longtime Bloombergian. And he partnered with me on the story and we got an editor, Matt Monks, who's my deputy, to publish it. And it turned out the deal was Broadcom buying VMware which by the way, the deal hasn't closed. It was a $39 billion deal. It wasn't the biggest tech deal of all time. So the tip was actually a little wrong. <laughs> but in this person's mind, it was the biggest deal of all time. It was close. It was close. But we, we broke it. We're still waiting to see what happens with regulators. 
I'm kind of rooting for it to be approved because it would be nice to, to have that in my cap and tell people that, hey, if you leak to Leanna Baker and Bloomberg, like the deal will get done, even if it's a mega deal, like 39 billion. So that one, it was just like the cherry on top to my wedding season. And I got to go on Bloomberg radio and TV and like tell little tidbits from this. And the deal, it took a few days to get announced, but eventually, yeah, it got to the finish line and it was just really fulfilling because Broadcom had been a company that had been on my radar for so many years. It used to actually be called Avago and Hawk Tan, sort of an entrepreneur type, turned this company Avago into Broadcom. Avago actually bought Broadcom early on when I was on the M&A beat and it just kept like consolidating bigger and bigger and then it swallowed up, it was planning to swallow up VMware, which is a big name in tech. But yeah, that was that story. And yeah, the longer I've been, the longer you're an M&A reporter, the bigger the deals get, hopefully. Another good one I had at Bloomberg was Microsoft. Before they bought Activision, that was one that got away. But they bought this company called Nuance Communications a few years ago for almost $20 billion, And I got to break that one. So yeah, I just big tech deals. Those are hopefully, hopefully there'll be more. But I had a nice run on those. So from the time you got the tip at your bridal shower to breaking the story, how much time passed? Maximum three hours, I'd say. Three, four hours. It was very fast. But I, again, I was in the zone. It was a Sunday. Sundays are a great day for reporters to reach sources because they're not in meetings all day long. And that's why we always have a reporter on the Sunday shift, we call it, which the reporters hate and the editors hate. They have to work on the weekend, but it's only <laughs> it only comes around like once a month or, you know, the more people you have, the less you have to work it. But it's invaluable because that's how you get these important people on the phone quickly. And yeah, we put the story out. It was the same day as the bridal shower. And it's always nerve wracking because once the story's out, you're curious, like if your competitors are going to match you, you're always trying to break a story that then gets matched by you know the FT, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Reuters, because then you're all in it together. The deal goes to hell, like you all reported on it. <laughs> but on the other hand, you're torn because if you break a big story, you wanna be exclusive for like a day or two. So it's, you're kind of torn between, do I want my competitors to confirm it quickly? Cause that'll show the world it's real and I'm real and this is legit, or do you wanna be the first one for like several days and then you're kind of in the spotlight. So that's the, always the, uh, the big thing to weigh. It's kind of out of your control. Well, and I was, I mean, I can edit this out if you don't want it in, but um, I am just curious if you've ever gotten it completely wrong. So I honestly think that every reporter is going to have some, horror story on M&A that you'll remember it and no one else remembers it. But at Reuters, I was part of a story about Samsung being intoxicated by BlackBerry that got denied right away. I still don't know what happened with that. I wasn't the lead reporter, but my name was on the story. But at the time, BlackBerry was a big deal. Now it's like a joke. But there's a movie that came out called BlackBerry that I heard is supposed to be good about the story of that company. But yeah, no, it's definitely these denials that I mentioned, they could happen. 
but you got to stay strong and you, you know, you're, you got to trust your sources and your editors. And we really do have good checks and balances that you can't, you don't just write a story based on one source telling you something like we we make sure that the people that we talk to have firsthand knowledge. And when we put out a story, like our a news outlets really behind it, it's not just a rumor, but there are unfortunate scenarios where sometimes Maybe you don't get the whole thing wrong, but you get something wrong or it looks bad. That's always going to happen in journalism. But you have to have more hits than strikeouts, basically, to have a good track record so people know you and talk to you. And you're only as good as your reputation. If you're known as a reporter that's getting everything wrong, you're probably not going to last. Yeah. And your love for baseball shining through in your metaphors. (laughs) Yeah my cheesy metaphors but yeah no the Montreal Expos like that is the only reason I would maybe ever return to Montreal is if the baseball team ever comes back (laughs) so (laughs) losing a team is so hard dare to dream yeah dare to dream yeah so next up is the lightning round it's faster paced questions do you feel ready ready to go I did some competitive trivia when I was uh in high school, and I love a good bar trivia night, so love a good lightning round. Great. The first question, then, is if there's a publication that covers kind of what you cover, generally I ask it about a country a foreign correspondent is in, that you think is does a really good job at what you do that maybe not everybody knows, people outside the M&A world don't know. Does something like that exist for you in M&A? So besides the big the big brands that people know in business? Yeah, yeah. Sure. So the M&A environment of the past few years has been so strong, although this year it's, it's not doing great. But there's mushroomed a lot of trade publications. So Merger Market Deal Reporters, a trade publication. They have a very heavy paywall. It's really expensive, but people pay to have access to it and... It's hard to get your hands on those stories, but a lot of reporters from that newsroom end up at Bloomberg, Reuters, Wall Street Journal. I mentioned my friend Lauren Hirsch at DealBook. She started at Merger Market Deal Reporters. So that's just a good breeding ground for M&A reporters because they hire them young. They teach them the art of cold calling, which is such a key part of business reporting or any reporting in general. Just picking up the phone and calling a stranger, I think it's really underrated that's the top way to make sources. Yeah, yeah. No, cold calling is very important. And yeah, it's good for a lot of younger journalists listen to this. You know, it can be a way to maybe look there to get to Bloomberg, Reuters, etc. There's a lot of trade publications now that even compete with Deal Reporter. There's one in restructuring called Reorg Research. And these are all really good places to start. If you're coming out of college, and I'm always giving people advice to look at trade publications. I know it's like not glamorous. You're not at a huge paper right away, but it's you get the skills you need and can make money. And I think it's better than freelancing to to work, get a steady paycheck, and then get your foot in the door after a few years at a bigger place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we graduated in the financial crisis. I'm, I'm totally on board with that. There was definitely a phase where, like, yeah, that would have sounded great to me right out of college. Cool. And then 
what is a journalistic publication you read, listen to, or watch more for fun? So not related to work, but something vaguely journalistic in nature, even if it's, uh, you know, not text, but a podcast or, or really whatever format. So my husband got me into barstool sports a few years ago and like, I'm so deep into it and I know they're controversial and it's now owned by a gambling company and <laughs> Portnoy is always in the news, but like I freaking love their podcasts. They just have such good podcasts, like recapping shows that I watch or they have one called Chicks at the Office and I just can't get enough of these like podcasts and they are not really journalists. They're sort of media personalities, but it's, you know, they're interviewing people occasionally and yeah I just I love a, a lot of the content that Barstool puts out and when I'm trying to turn my brain off or walking to work and I want to hear something that'll just put me in a good mood I you know put on part of my take or chicks at the office or snuffing torches which is a recap of survivor I love that one <laughs> so yeah there's <laughs> just there's a good hockey one spitting chiclets like they just they have so many good good podcasts Huh, that's good to know. I don't know them at all. I'll look into it. And then the next question is, what is the best journalistic article piece? Again, it can be whatever medium that you have consumed recently, and it can't be from the publication you work for. So there's so many that I try to read like several business books a year just to stay current. And I have a long list of things coming up. But I saw the movie House of Gucci a few years ago, and I noticed that when I was watching it, it said it was based on a on a book by, like, Sarah Gay Forden. And I was like, Sarah Forden? I think I work with her at Bloomberg. And I looked it up, and she's, like, a team leader in, in Washington, and she wrote the book House of Gucci, which the movie's based on. So I picked up the book, and it was really fantastic. It's from 2004, and it just tells the story of the Gucci fashion house and there's murder and intrigue and it's, it's a true story. It reads like fiction and, you know, Adam Driver and Lady Gaga starred in the movie, but I'd say that <laughs> the book is way better and I highly recommend it and it stands up and it's, it's just a terrific read. Cool. Yeah. I didn't know it was written by a Bloomberg journalist or much less a journalist. And then next, is there any particular subject matter you geek out about that isn't related to your job at all? I just geeked out about Barstool Sports, so I talked about that already. I don't know. I'm one of those people. I think a lot of reporters are like this. Like, you just kind of become obsessed with something briefly, you know. But I'm not a dilettante or anything. But, like, I'll just pick up some area of and then, like, have to read everything about it. But I'm trying to think what I geek out about. Or, yeah, whatever you've done that with most recently or, yeah. Yeah, I was just at a wedding where I was chatting with someone about curling. I grew up curling. I was on my high school curling team, very Canadian, and I started geeking out about it. But And I realized it had been too long and I should really get back out there. I have to say, I mentioned it a few times, but this Live Golf PGA Tour merger, I play golf on the side. I'm kind of a beginner, but I have a handicap. I play every weekend. I joined a golf club during the pandemic and I was just really geeking out but I guess it's related to my job but 
golf these days like is not really related to my job it's just worlds collided this week but I would say I'm really interested in how that's going to play out and what happens to Tiger Woods and that has nothing to do with with Bloomberg but I'll be following that really closely cool Next question is, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? I thought a lot about this when you sent the prep questions. So at Reuters, I briefly overlapped with Megan Toohey. You might remember her name. She's one of the New York Times reporters that broke the Weinstein story. Uh, It was her and Jody Cantor. But Megan Toohey was one of the authors of She Said, and she's played in a movie, She Said, and we actually had the same desk at Reuters at one point. Like I had her old, or I, I had moved desk, you know, you know, when you're in a big newsroom, I always moving you around and I had moved and she was in my old desk and I'd always run into her like in the women's bathroom. That's where a lot of women network in, in these big news organizations. And I was always like, wow, she's so well-dressed. And she was working on a story at Reuters when we overlapped about how children were being bought and sold on like Yahoo message groups. And she had these award-winning stories that I totally sort of forgot about when she went to New York Times and she broke the Harvey Weinstein story. But I recently went to a play in New York City that was based on her Reuters series about these children that were sold on Yahoo message group. So they, it was a great play called Wolf Play. It was like critically acclaimed. And I didn't realize, like I saw the play and I said to the person I went with, I was like, you know, I think this is based on a Reuters story. And then after in the lobby, I noticed they had like the articles blown up. So, you know, you're really having an impact if people are writing plays about your Reuters special reports. So, yeah, I've just really been impressed with her. And she always just seemed like a nice person. And I really enjoy reading the book she said about how they broke that story, especially the first part of the book where they talk about how their editors want, they want more and they want more sourcing. And like, it was just easy to relate to. And yeah, I'd say Megan Toohey. Cool. Yeah, that's a good answer. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? I would say, since we were reminiscing about being at Northwestern together, I would say I would go back and just tell myself to chill out a little bit and maybe like party a bit more because like my husband went to a different college and he just had such a typical college experience where he was like having fun and like drinking or, you know, hanging out at the frats. And when I think back to Northwestern, I just remember being stressed out the whole time about needing to find an internship, to find a job, to stay in the country because I was Canadian, trying to make it in the States. So I would just go back and try to like just have more fun in college would have been great. Although maybe I wouldn't get where I am today, but that is something I think about. And I do alumni interviews for Northwestern and they sometimes ask me, the high school prospective students, like what I would have done differently. And I, I do say, I wish I just had a little more fun in college. 
I mean, it's interesting. I feel like I knew so many of the most like tightly wound uh, <laughs> journalism students, that, like like Noman or Libby, or so, the list goes on and on of people who just orchestrated every internship every summer and the daily and doing the right things. And I, it just seemed so exhausting. But then I look, and these are the people who are mostly still working in the media. Like a lot of people who went to Medill did not end up in the media. Yeah, I really don't know what to make of that, but it, it looks stressful from the outside. Yeah, well, did you have a more typical college experience? I mean, I feel like you were trying to just get into those Medill classes, so you were probably making yourself crazy. Yeah, I mean, at times, but I, I would say the fact that I wasn't in Medill, only took three classes, the fact that I like took a year and went abroad, I had more typical experience to the point where, yeah, it was almost hard to make the credits to add up for me to graduate on time. But wow. uh, yeah, I did worry that I would see Noman or Danny Yadrin or these people doing this. And I would be just like, I am so off this track. I feel like I had to get on this track like three years ago. So I, I didn't even really try doing the whole internship circuit at newsrooms, at newspapers and stuff like that. Yeah. But it all worked out. But yeah, there was that definitely that pervasive, like that you had to get on the track. Like, so I, I would definitely go back and just say to younger Leanna and younger Jake, just enjoy the, the process and it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What is one thing that most people don't know about you? Well, now it's out there. I kind of spoke about it. Like I'm sort of a sports nut. Like I don't love every single sport, but I try to follow almost everything and like also just trying to play as many sports as I can. I'm a very non-athletic athlete. That's what I like to call myself. And I I will try to do it all. Golf, tennis, skiing. I was really trying to get back into skating. Like I'd love to be one of those older women that takes up hockey. Like I'm not an older woman yet. But like I'd love to be in the next 10 years. Like start playing hockey in like a women's league or something. So yeah, I'm just love sports even if I'm not good at them this one is hit or miss feel free to answer or not what is your most embarrassing journalism related story so I mentioned earlier that I was a video game beat reporter and I was kind of covering the birth of like esports now it's like a known thing people love watching other people play sports and streaming and you know Amazon bought twitch and all that but I was there kind of at the beginning, you know, 2010, 2011, and I filmed this video with Reuters where I interviewed a professional gaming coach, and there was, like, some really high-profile, like, gamer in the video, and, like, I don't really have great video chops or video experience, although Bloomberg TV has tried to help me, like, get out there more, but there's, like, some video, I can't find it online, but... I'm just so awkward in this video asking this coach questions and I just, I don't know if I bombed it or I, I was giving him like looks like I, I didn't want to be there. But <laughs> this video kind of went like viral kind of at the time where it would just get a lot of comments. Oh no. Like not viral viral, but let's say, let's say Reuters YouTube videos were getting like maybe a few hundred hits or a thousand hits. This one got like 20,000 because there was a big gamer involved, but I mentioned I don't like video games, clearly didn't care for competitive games, even though I, I love sports. So that, that whole thing was embarrassing, and I, I wish I could 
get the tape and like er I think it was erased from the internet already by Reuters but yeah I wish that that didn't exist <laughs> yeah yeah as a text reporter especially early on I'm grateful that I didn't <laughs> like it there's no film recording of many of the interviews I've done especially early on exactly exactly this next question is more of a pinch me I can't believe this is my life moment so it could be the coolest situation or the most surreal or the weirdest or, you know, something that you're like, I can't believe this is my job or I can't believe like my job has put me in this situation. Covering media and also video games, I've had funny experiences where like a big star will come out with a video game and you get to interview them. So um, one time I had a sit down interview with Sean White, the Olympian snowboarder, because he came oh, out yeah. with a skateboard game and we took a photo where we're like hair twins kind of, cause he had like curly hair and I have curly hair, but he has red hair. <laughs> so that was surreal, but that was a great photo. And I rarely would take a photo with like someone I interviewed, but I was like, come on, this is Sean White. And I, I was just doing this for fun. And that, that was great. I wrote a story on that. Although there was a correction on the story because his nickname is like the flying red tomato. But we just we said in the story his nickname was the red tomato. So that was an embarrassing moment, but it was fine. Um, and then one <laughs> other time I used to cover the media upfronts in New York City, which are these big like advertising showcases that the media companies put on for advertisers and they invite the press. And there was this fancy lunch and Conan O'Brien was there and I somehow was like chatting with Conan O'Brien and I, I'm not even a huge Conan O'Brien fan, but I was covering the cable industry and he had just gone to cable. Now he's off the air, off cable, but it was a big moment at the time when he went from NBC to TBS or whatnot. So I asked him what he thinks of the dual revenue stream of cable because cable has advertising dollars and also they get dollars per household from the paid tv providers so that is like possibly the nerdiest question he's probably ever asked what do you think <laughs> but he knew what he went to harvard like he knows all about the dual revenue stream so but that's just funny and but sometimes i can't get out of my head like this business reporter persona i have i just can't escape it cool and then uh we're on to the last two questions first is what is your favorite film book tv or other media property that involves journalists and why i've been struggling with this one because as you know as a reporter for some reason a lot of the stuff out there in the the media world were just portrayed negatively or people are sleeping with their sources or things are just wrong and it would never work that way so i always had trouble suspending belief when watching any tv show or movie when something doesn't appear real but especially with journalism it's really hard to really like something because everything is just so, seems so fake when it's a show. But there's a few things that I think have been really accurate. So the book Bad Blood about Theranos by John Carreyrou, that's a great book, highly recommend it. But there's a TV show, The Dropout on Hulu, where the reporter is a character in the show. And I really thought they nailed it, how he is struggling to get the story out and his editor keeps being like you need more like you don't have the source and he's saying 
I'm going to go meet this guy and don't worry, he's going to come through. And then the sources go dark for a while, like the whistleblowers on Theranos go dark. And there's some great scenes with the lawyers for Theranos and how they're trying to kill the story. And I really think that accurately portrayed how hard it is to get out anything negative about any company when you're trying to bring something to light that they don't want out there. So that great show good soundtrack and great portrayal of a journalist and his wife actually works at Bloomberg too in real life okay well huh yeah no now that I think about it I think my wife did mention that to me that she had watched it and that there was a journalist character in it so maybe I will have to check it out it's like a side plot of it but that's the thing there's like what's your favorite thing where journalists are portrayed like do you really think it's realistic like you kind of have to find little pockets where it might be accurate yeah yeah it's hard to find let's see and then the last question is qualifications aside you know if you could do absolutely anything but you couldn't be a journalist what job would you do that is a really tough one because after telling you my life story and spilling my guts I've always wanted to be a journalist and I never really pursued anything else but I'd probably do something like adjacent to journalism. I don't want to do PR ever, but like my friends always said I would have been a good speechwriter, for example, but I don't really know if I have the, you know, the skills for that. I do have just so many hobbies though. Like I I love reading and playing golf and skiing and I feel like if I couldn't do journalism, I would just like pursue like athletic pursuit like like, if you really want to work on your golf game, it's not a job, but you could treat it like a job. <laughs> so I just feel like <laughs> I would, I think if I couldn't be a journalist, I almost wouldn't want to have any job. And I would just try to, like, live a life of leisure. That sounds pretty nice. But trying to work on different, you know, bettering myself and just getting my handicap down from 37.7 to something more normal. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, somebody did answer once, just independently wealthy. They they wouldn't want to work, just have a lot of money. Do I, what they I want. don't need to be wealthy. I just, uh, I need, it's the time. You need the time to, <laughs> to put into all this stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. True, cool. Well, okay. Uh, that's all the questions. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Of course. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Leanna Baker, managing editor of The Deal Team for Bloomberg News in the United States. I'll post links to some of the things Leanna talked about in the podcast description and on our show page, hornpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter or whatever it's called these days at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode in September. 
Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.